Hello and welcome to Demystifying Wellness. We're your hosts, Laura Merkel and Dr. Jared Aguilar. On this special episode, we interview Amy Pisani from Vaccinate Your Family. Let's get into it. All right, so today we are here with Amy Pisani. Um, We're really excited to have her here. She is a leading um, authority in vaccine advocacy and the executive director of Vaccinate Your Family. Um, And in that role, she's played an integral part in setting the standards for immunization in America today. So welcome, Amy. Thank Um, you. We're really excited to have you here. Um, I thought that we could maybe start by just having you tell us a little bit more about what you do with Vaccinate Your Family and what drew you to that work. Sure, so Vaccinate Your Family, we're actually celebrating our 30th anniversary this year. Um, It was founded in 1991 um, by former First Lady Rosalind Carter and Betty Bumpers, who is the wife of Senator Dale Bumpers. And they both worked on vaccines as First Ladies of Georgia and Arkansas back in the 1970s. Um, When Jimmy Carter came to office, um, Betty and Rosalind worked together to help pass laws in every state that require vaccines for school and now daycares as well. And um, when there was a big measles outbreak in the early 80s, um, they got together and they decided to create an organization and they founded us as Every Child by Two. So we've spent 30 years um, advocating for vaccines, educating the public. We talked to Congress about funding needs and we changed our name to Vaccinate Your Family a couple of years ago because we wanted to make sure that people of all ages were protected against vaccine preventable diseases. Awesome. And, and so what drew you to this organization and this, this advocacy work? So I've had an amazing career. I've been here for 25 years. Um, I was, I think I was 27 years old when I met Mrs. Carter. Um, I was working at the American Nurses Association in Washington, D.C., um, and they had brought the organization into that program because they wanted to institutionalize vaccinations. And so they felt like nurses were the way to do that, right? Because nurses give away, you know, give out most of the vaccines, particularly for children. So um, I was working there and everybody knew I loved children. I actually wanted to work with deaf children. I um, was getting my master's degree from Gallaudet University. Um, And so ironically, I interviewed for this amazing job and I got it. And here I've been for 25 years and there are fewer deaf people now because of vaccines. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, so many children used to become deaf from rubella um, or uh, during pregnancy of their mothers or later on due to various illnesses. So it's just an irony that I ended up here and it's been a great, great ride for me. Awesome, wow. Um, Great, so I think I wanna, we wanna kind of dive into some, some kind of common questions that people are having about vaccines in general, but more specifically the COVID vaccine, since that's kind of what's um, in the zeitgeist right now mm-hmm. with, you know, pretty important. Yeah. With the pandemic and everything. So I, I thought we'd start really basic and just have you explain the difference between a vaccine and being vaccinated. That's such a great question. No one ever asked that question. Um, so as you can see now, especially with COVID, we created vaccines. That's so wonderful. And um, it's amazing how quickly they were able to really galvanize. I wish they could do that for things like malaria and things that are devastating third world nations, but um, developing nations, sorry. Um, But be that as it may, you can create all the vaccines you want, but if we don't have a really great infrastructure to deliver those vaccines to everyone at every level of society, um, vaccination isn't working. 
Um, mm -hmm. So that's, I think we're seeing that dilemma right now. And we're really concerned about those disparities in coverage, which exist for almost all adult vaccines. Um, mm -hmm. So one thing that's really interesting is that um, Bill Clinton during his presidency passed what's called the Vaccines for Children program. And it makes vaccines free for any child who can't afford it. And it really eliminated the disparities among race and um, among different um, people of different financial means. We don't have that for adults. And so um, white adults are much higher vaccinated than um, Asian, um, Hispanic, and other people of color. So we're seeing how that's happening and playing out with COVID virus. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, so digging a little bit more into COVID, um, we have there, right now there are two vaccines approved for emergency use. Um, can you talk a little bit about them and like what, what similar about them, what's different? Um, cause I think a lot of people are confused since there are two. Yep. So, um, well, those were some public health, just kind of backing up a little bit to when this mm -hmm. whole COVID nightmare started. We, um, we've all worked together. There's an amazing um, partnership across the, you know, the, the medical societies and people in public health. We've been working together you know, for decades to make sure that everyone's vaccinated. So whether you're the American Medical Association or an immunization program, we all collaborate together. When they started developing the vaccines for COVID, we band together and demanded that they follow the approval process that we normally see at the FDA. Mm -hmm. Um, it's funny now, it's all happened. It's happened exactly the way that we asked them to do it. We didn't, we didn't want them to skip any steps. Um, we did have a lot of fears back, you know, in the spring when they were really trying to, you know, ramp up the warp speed program um, that we wanted to make sure that there was no pressure at all in the FDA, like they had to do that emergency use authorization. Because otherwise, if we don't trust it, we're not going to tell our friends, our family and our audiences mm -hmm. to get it. So the vaccines that were um, approved so far, the reason why they've been, um, they're much, they were much faster in the process, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, they use a new technology. Uh, it's really amazing. And so they use this mRNA technology, which everyone's been hearing about. It's really simple to explain. I think everybody now knows how the virus looks. It has that spike off of it. And mm -hmm. that spike is what normally attaches itself to a cell and that, and that allows it that gateway to send the virus into the cell. And that is what makes you ill. They developed a technology that basically cuts off the ability for that, that spike to, to glom onto your cell and therefore transmit it. What's different than the other vaccines that are under investigation, which are maybe like six more that we're hoping to get this year, they're going to use the actual virus of, COVID, of um, coronavirus. They're going to kill it. They're going to make it so it can't cause the virus in your body. And then they're going to vaccinate you. And that's a typical vaccine and how it works. Mm, okay, cool. Um, and then, so with these, with these two mRNA vaccines, are they virtually like the same as each other? Or um, I think one of them I saw was approved more for like younger folks. Is that, is that the case or is it kind of anyone could do either? No, well, I mean, there are, there are parameters around them, but they're equally effective, okay. and, um, which is amazing. You don't always see that with a vaccine. So they're equally effective. Um, so far, research is showing that they're, they're going to be, you know, the last as long as one another, but we won't really know until we move forward. There's a lot of unknowns. What we do know is that um, there's not enough 
<laughs> so when your doctor says it's time for you to get a vaccine, you just take the one that they're offering. They both have the same safety profile. Um, okay. You know, we're seeing the same in, among both of them. And so I think both Pfizer or Moderna, I would be more than happy to take either once it's my turn. Yes, <laughs> of course. All right. So you kind of, you talked a bit about, um, you know, how this vaccine is different. Um, and I think that you, you already touched a bit on the fact that um, I think a lot of people have this kind of concern around that it was approved or that it, it came about so quickly because we've seen with like, like the polio vaccine took forever to develop. And, um, and so, but it sounds like what you're saying is that it still went through all of the steps. So in terms of safety and efficacy, it's the, the timeline didn't, didn't diminish that in any way, correct? No, what, what, what they need to do is they have to have a certain number of people in each study phase. And they did that. They just pushed it forward really quickly. And believe me, I am really grateful that it happened. It was really just the power of the purse. It was really just the fact that so many funds were given to, mm -hmm. um, to kickstart it. And although Pfizer didn't use the money that came from Warp Speed to do their individual investigation, they didn't take any money. Um, but the other companies have, and there's nothing wrong with that. They were able to kickstart their work. Um, but the greatest scientists in America worked on getting this through and following the safety protocol and making sure that they looked at, you know, any person who had an adverse reaction, which is basically an adverse reaction is anything beyond the sore arm, the fever that you would normally see. Um, and they investigated each and every one to make sure that there was nothing to be concerned about before they were able to authorize it. So, you know, long story short, it went really quickly. Um, it was really the power of the purse that pushed it through. And also just like every single great mind in America and beyond willing to share their, their scientific research. Um, Laura, one other thing I would mention is that people think coronavirus is new and it's not. Mm -hmm. it's, it's been investigated for over a decade. Um, it's, a, it's a new strain and it's, it's obviously really powerful but it's not like the research is new. All of the vaccines that are being created are being based on years, decades of research on this virus. Mm. So we just are seeing um, a more rapid way to, to figure out how we can um, you know, get the vaccines in. And as the strain evolves, <clears throat> according to our colleagues at the FDA, they will um, be able to you know, potentially insert that virus into the new vaccines that are being created, just like they do for flu every year. Oh, okay, cool. That's awesome. Um, and I think, so I, again, I'm not, I'm obviously not an expert in this area, but even um, you say that like the coronavirus has been around for, we've been studying it for a long time. mRNA technology, while it's like new in this usage, it's, that's also been studied for a long time, correct? That's. It's the first time it's ever been used in a vaccine. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's not a brand new concept, but it's yeah. the first time it's been used in a vaccine, which I think makes people, well, it's, it's confusing, right? You don't know, people don't know the average difference between mRNA technology and regular cell-based vaccines. Um, I think really what people need to just remember and keep in mind are the safety systems that we have in our country. We are so lucky. There are six major safety systems that, um, that, that keep track of vaccines once they're given. So um, any vaccine, like every vaccine that we get, they go through these um, various safety systems. So they have millions and millions and millions of records of people getting vaccinated. 
And if there's any type of reaction among a, like a certain number of people, it'll trigger scientists to say, oh, we need to take a look at this. And, and I can tell you it's worked. Like the rotavirus vaccine was taken off the market years ago um, because it was causing something called intussusception, which is when the, um, which long story, but anyway, um, they took it off the market. I mean, it really works. And when you, when you watch these meetings happen at CDC and you see these, these experts say, look, we're, we feel like there might be a trigger here. Let's further investigate it. It makes me know that when I like tell my family to get vaccinated, I'm not worried about it. Yeah, that's great. Um, and so now this vaccine, um, both both of the vaccines that are out for COVID are um, two rounds of a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious, so I know Jared's already gotten his first round. What would happen if if he didn't get his second round? Like, oh, you have to get a second. <laughs> so these vaccines need two doses. The ones that are coming down the pike, not all of them will be two doses. Some of them okay. will be one. If you only get your first dose, you'll, first of all, it's only 50% effective, the first dose. Mm. So you, it's basically priming your body to know that you're, that you need to build up an immunity, but without that second dose, it won't finish building the engine, so to speak. It's the same with many vaccines, like shingles vaccine, you need two doses. There's a lot of vaccines that you need more than one dose. Even a baby, even a child, even though we only get one flu vaccine every year, the first time a child gets vaccinated at that, you know, six months age, mm-hmm. they have to be vaccinated with two vaccines because their system isn't, is only primed, but it's not ready to, to fight the virus. Okay, great. And then I know that the, the timeline is about like, you know, I think it's different, like 21 days versus 28 days apart. Um, and like how close on that mark do you want, like, do you want to be exactly at 21 days or does no, it, there's, there's a little flex? There's a little flexibility. You know, there's a little flexibility. And, you know, right now the nation, it looks like the nation is planning on opening up plans to just try to vaccinate more people mm-hmm. and hope and prayers that the production will continue at a rapid pace. Um, there are some of us in public health that are concerned because we don't want to see a shortage with the people who needed their second dose. That would be mm. really bad news. Um, but that seems to be where the nation is heading. Yeah. Um, uh, that actually goes right into my next question, which was, um, I wanted to hear your thoughts a little bit on the way we're rolling this out and what you think, um, maybe like what, what needs to happen versus what's happening. Um, yeah. So (laughs) people think it's so simple to just go ahead and start vaccinating people. Let's just open up the Sears and we'll have people line up to get vaccinated. Um, but first of all, Although money was given to create the vaccines, not a penny was given to public health to start the plans for implementation. Mm. I, I think you probably saw that Congress finally passed the bill right before the holiday, the, um, the money that we were requesting, $8 billion to, um, to, you know, to really start the infrastructure. Health departments have been underfunded for over a decade, probably more. And I mean, woefully underfunded. They haven't been able to hire people. Um, you know, we've had measles outbreaks. Like it's a never ending battle when it comes to vaccine preventable diseases. And what you need to do in order to do a massive rollout like this is we need to train providers. You have to um, get them authorized. They need to know how to administer the vaccine, the tracking of the vaccine. You know all about the, the cold storage, like everybody's been hearing about that. We've all been learning about this cold storage issue and trying to teach everybody we can possibly get to that will be providing vaccines about that. Um, and then to complicate matters even more, 
people are calling desperately. I can't, I already picked up six calls today from states where people are, don't know where to go to, to sign up to get vaccinated. There's no system in place right now to pre-enroll people. And I'm not quite sure how we're going to just leave it to private providers. I mean, they have enough calls in their call list just for people who are sick. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> yep. So, all right. Well, so, cause I know um, Fauci had put out like a, a, an idea of wanting to have, I don't, it was like 70 or 80% by June. Do you think that's kind of unrealistic with where we're at? Well, let me say that every state is different. Okay. And, you know, that's unfortunately what we keep telling. Most of these are seniors who are calling us. So it's really difficult. And we tell them that every single state is different. You really have to go onto the local website to find out where to find out more information. And on vaccinateyourfamily.org, we have a whole COVID section and we have a whole section on where do you call if you're in which state? So people can mm. do that. Um, here where I live in my state, I was just speaking to our, our local public health people and the system in place to register people is broken. Oh, wow. It's being used in 10 other states at least. It's completely glitchy. And when they're actually processing the vaccine, so if they have somebody in the clinic ready to get vaccinated, if they can't get their information into the system, they have to wait call this tech support for this company that got funded to create this system and they cannot move forward. We need, in my opinion, to thus put all that aside, start paper tracking it, filling out the paper forms and let's fill it out later. And I know it's so critical to get someone in for that second dose, but I don't think we can wait anymore. We'll never get to that number by June. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's disappointing. Do you have any hope that the, that things will change with the new um, administration in DC or? So we have a direct line of communication in with the Biden transition team. Uh, we met with them last week and we, you know, we told them our concerns. Um, Vaccinate Your Family is really focusing on um, helping to eliminate disparities in coverage. Mm -hmm. So we've partnered with um, the National Council for Negro Women and we're going to be doing a massive educational program. Um, this organization represents 2 million um, women of African descent in America. And so we're going to be super educating them and so that they can go out and you know help their their own communities know where to go how to whether to trust the vaccine like answer all the really tough questions and these kinds of efforts are happening all over the nation I mean, our partners in every state there's a coalition for immunizations in every state and so i do think we'll overcome the issues i worry about those people who don't have a doctor of their own um, they're not going to have an easy time getting the vaccine. And I just don't see this, you know, sending people to, you know, stadiums to get vaccinated. It's not going to help people who are really disparate. Mm. Um, so this, this number we've been hearing, um, or like I just said, this like 70 to 80% that we're like reaching for. Um, I guess my question is like, what what like do we have a clear percentage on what what amount of the population would need to be vaccinated to achieve like herd immunity and maybe talk a little bit about what herd immunity is for some of our listeners listeners who might not know sure so numbers are always interesting to hear on a podcast but it's very simple the vaccine is 90% effective. It is not 100% effective. Mm -hmm. And so when scientists determine how virulent the, the virus is, how contagious the virus is, they have to calculate in, okay, if it's this contagious and it's 90% effective, the vaccine, what percentage do we need to hit in order to basically stop the 
put a gap between the virus and the next victim. And that is determined at 70 to 80% for this particular virus. It's okay. um, similar with you know measles, it's the same way. Measles before coronavirus was one of the most infectious diseases on the planet. And um, if we don't have up to 90% um, community immunity or herd immunity against that virus, we slip back and it, it has that, it'll have its route into the next human and then to the next human. Got it. Um, so this, um, so this is all to say, cause you know, it seems like we're probably, it's gonna be further out than June, <laughs> presumably when, when we have that herd immunity, if we get to that herd immunity. I think we I might make it by June. You think we can make it by June? So in the meantime, if you've been vaccinated, should you still be wearing a mask and social distancing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because again, it's only 90% effective. Um, we don't know how long it's going to last yet, right? The vaccine is new. So we have no idea how long the immunity will last. The virus is so, um, it's so powerful. It's so infectious and it's also mutating. Mm -hmm. And so that mask wearing is so important right now. Yeah. Do we have, um, I, it's probably too soon to tell, but do we have any information on like, because this new strain that they found in the UK, and I think now it's in New York, um, is do we have any information about how this vaccine, these vaccines interact with that? So I was speaking to some colleagues and I didn't know this yesterday. I just learned this, that um, it appears that the new strain, it's something to do with the nasal passages and it's, it's better able to infiltrate the nasal passages. That's why it's so infectious. And, I, and I, we don't know whether or not it's more deadly. Um, I suspect that it's not based on what we're hearing, but it is more infectious. Um, the current vaccines, I would presume, would not protect against the strain. However, I, you know, interestingly, now that I'm saying it out loud, if the mRNA technology cuts off the receptor, perhaps it would. The other vaccines that are coming down the pike don't include the strain um, in it but I'm told that it could be included, you know, late in the game. So okay. I guess the answer, Laura, is I don't know the answer yet. We have yeah. to keep wearing masks until we know more about this virus. And, um, and it's, you know, knowing that it's more contagious, particularly among your nasal passages, that's why that mask would be so important. Okay. Yeah, that's good to know. Hey, I'm going to wear a mask from now on when I'm on an airplane because I get a sinus infection every time <laughs> I go away for work because somebody makes me ill. Yeah. So, that's like I mean, my only thing. I'm never going to be shy about wearing it again. I mean, yeah, for sure. I feel like, like, why haven't we been wearing masks during flu season all along, you know? Because people don't care about other human beings. And I think oh. COVID finally is telling people a lot of people survive flu, but mm -hmm. 50 to 60,000 people die of it every year. Pregnant women are incredibly um, at risk. Babies are at risk. My own child, Antonio, who's now in college, um, was hospitalized two times with influenza. And wow. I'm telling you what, we're the one of the lucky ones. I know so many people who have lost their children to flu. It's 150 people last year lost their kids to flu. Oh, that's horrible. And, and preventable. Yeah. It is preventable if people would just understand community immunity, which they do understand now. And I'm hoping we've seen with we've seen with outbreaks in the past that people's memory or ability to care, it diminishes very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very me mentality. And so, you know, what we are seeing that family is becoming more essential in the conversations. And so 
what we're working on is really messaging message research about how do we how do we ensure that people you know want to get their covid vaccine and you really have to remember to say you can protect yourself and your family um and the loved ones around you but that family aspect is really critical and it is why a lot of minority communities vaccinate against flu there's research about that for years hmm that's really interesting um you you know coming back a little bit um you had mentioned um you know that we have this initiative to get children vaccinated but that we don't have that infrastructure in place for um adults so is the covid vaccine going to cost people anything or are we putting systems in place to make that a little bit more accessible so right now the vaccines are free for everyone um but that won't necessarily be the case if it becomes an annual need, right? If we have to keep vaccinated against this every year, I, I don't anticipate that it will always be free. We have a lot of bills in front of Congress, um, which are going to be reintroduced, reintroduced now that we have a new Congress um, to try to help eliminate the disparities in Medicaid and Medicare. And there's all of these gaps in coverage for adults that really make this inequity very um, apparent. And it depends on what state you live in. Like a pregnant woman might be covered for vaccines in one state and not in another state. Or um, there's only two vaccines that are covered by Medicare completely, and that's pneumococcal and influenza. But shingles and, um, and any other vaccines are not covered by Medicare in full. And so it really, and it's expensive, you know, it's yeah. expensive to get some of these vaccines. Wow. So, so definitely get it while it's, while it's free, right? <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, I mean, we're looking at the Medicare reimbursement rates to providers right now to give the COVID vaccine and it's $3. It's terrible. That's nothing. Yeah. So I think that that is all gonna need to be resolved with our incoming Congress. And, you know, people think shingles isn't a big deal. Um, I turned 50 a couple of years ago and you're supposed to get your shingles vaccine when you turn 50 and I didn't cause I had had a ski accident, blah, blah, blah. I got the shingles right for Christmas and it ruined my holiday. I was so wow. ill and it lasts for some people for a really long time. I was one of the lucky ones. I had it on my lower back, but it sends like shockwaves to your system and um, it lasts for months and I felt tired and some people, you know, they get it in their eye or oh. they have long-term, you know, really long-term consequences from shingles. It's a really bad virus and it, it won't happen to your generation because you've been vaccinated against chickenpox um, but for anyone born like after the eighties, um, so you're safe, but people who didn't get vaccinated against chickenpox, the virus lays dormant in our bodies and it comes back out as shingles typically after we're 50 for some reason. Yeah. I will probably have to do that because I, I got chickenpox like right around the time I was supposed to get vaccinated for chickenpox. So I, oh yeah, you'll need I'll your have shingles to be, <laughs> have to be careful. Make sure, um, Make sure your parents had it. Yeah. I think they have. I'll have to double check. Have your parents had the shingles vaccine? I will definitely be checking it now. Good. <laughs> Important. Um, one a last question about the coronavirus, and then I think we can probably move on to just some general vaccination questions that I think people have. Um, for this vaccine, what, what about people who are um, pregnant, breastfeeding, immunocompromised? What do we need to know about them, can they get vaccinated? Yes, um, there's a lot of research happening right now. Um, a lot of, there's been over a thousand women that are pregnant who've been vaccinated as of a couple weeks ago, I know that. 
Um, yeah, they are being recommended for vaccination. That um, seems to be very safe for them. I would say, you know, you really want to talk to your your own provider, your own OBGYN or midwife or whoever it is. But um, it's a dangerous virus, and I look at other viruses, um, you know, that people get naturally, and they have really bad long-term consequences. And I think people are like, oh, well, like, what's the long-term consequences of COVID va vaccine? We've never had a vaccine that has anywhere near the consequences of the actual virus that you're getting yeah. naturally, you know? So was that the whole question? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Immunocompromised folks. Can oh, immunocompromised. Um, you got to come to my website. So okay. vaccinefamily.org. We have like every single question you can imagine. You keep asking me, but I do want people <laughs> to get like anyone who wants like real detailed information. We have all of that. People who are immune compromised, um, they're going to need the protection. Yeah. It's really difficult when someone who's immune compromised gets a virus. Um, it can really shut down their system. The mRNA technology doesn't have any virus in the vaccine again, so um, they would be recommended for the vaccine. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, we'll definitely put a link to your website in the um, in the show notes so that people okay. can like be listening and directly click out to it, which will be great. Okay. Um, and any other resources, if you wanted to send them, um, we could always you know include that. Um, all right, so moving on to kind of some vaccines in general. I mean, I know that there's, I'm sure <laughs> that you guys are really fighting against this anti-vax movement. Um, and so what do you say to somebody who's kind of still on the fence about whether or not they should vaccinate their children? Obviously you're, you work in vaccine ad advocacy, so you're gonna tell them to vaccinate, but like, how do you, how are you combating this, this anti-vax movement? So the anti-vax movement is nothing new. It started back in the 80s and it's really been really been a huge challenge for anyone who advocates for science. And I think back in the you know early 90s, when there were some concerns about the um, vaccines causing autism, I think people had a legitimate fear, um, but a ton of research was done around the world on that particular claim. And um, the, the worldwide entire scientific community has declared that A, there's no connection between um, any vaccine, particularly MMR vaccine and autism, and B, no more research can be done on it because it's a complete waste of valuable dollars to do research on other issues, including how to help treat and, and help families with autism. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where it really spun off and it you know just seemed to escalate from there. Um, so we basically play whack-a-mole with the new claims. There's always something new. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, then I want to call them activists because not everyone who's anti-vax is an activist. Mm -hmm. Some people are just on the fence, like you said, and, and I'll talk about them. But there are activists who are, are trying to tear down people's faith in the science behind science, vaccines. And, you know, one day they'll claim that it's autism. The next day they'll claim that it was sudden infant death syndrome was being caused by vaccines. We know now that by putting your child to sleep on their back, that eliminated that problem almost essentially. Um, so it's now they're saying that more people have allergies than ever before. It must be vaccines. No, that is not accurate in any way whatsoever. Um, there's just greater awareness of allergies and more ways to treat it. So, um, you know, people used to die when they had an anaphylactic shock from a peanut. Um, now they're not dying. And so we're knowing that they exist mm. because we have, um, you know, we have ways to treat anaphylaxis now. So you can see how it would turn like this. Um, 
so when it comes to what I tell parents about who are on the fence is that you have to really think about who it is you're listening to. Don't listen to a soundbite. Never just read a research study without thinking about who paid for the research. Mm-hmm. It's not hard to do a little bit of investigating. If you're on a website that is making a claim, are they trying to sell you something? Are they trying to sell you a natural product that is being um, developed by this, you know, this group? And, I, and I, unfortunately, there are many people who are in the natural product business who um, are making a tremendous amount of money, particularly off the autism claim. And partners that we work with at Autism Science Foundation, they are um, working really hard to try to help clarify to people, this is a treatment for autism. Putting a magnet under your bed is not a treatment for autism. Yeah. Giving your child snake oil is not a treatment for autism. Giving them marijuana is not a treatment for their autism. Yeah. What really I think makes me sad about all of that too is like, I still like it's, there's like that ableism component of it too. Like autism is not worse than your child dying of a preventable disease. And I feel like I, like that's the part I have trouble wrapping my mind around that like we have, I, like, I just, I can't see how having a kid with autism is so much worse than having a kid who had to go through measles. Um, even like, and I, we know the claims are, are not true, but even if they were like, it's still like, you know, you talked about that with COVID, the COVID vaccine that like, and all vaccines that like the, the side effects versus like the actual disease, like it's, it's not equal. <laughs> No, and Laura, and it's really torn the autism community to pieces because that type of rhetoric where someone would say, I'd rather my kid get measles. And that's what Jenny McCarthy said on TV on Oprah. Oh, oh my God. Um, yeah, she did. It turns out her child never had autism. Either that or he's the only person in the entire planet that was ever cured of autism. <laughs> so that's basically where we're at with her. Um, but, you know, when you get measles, your brain swells, you it's incredibly deadly. Um, but when you do survive it, even children who survive measles, we found out that decades down the road or if about a decade later, they can get a terrible um, illness that actually breaks down their brain. It, it really causes major problems for children. Mm. So uh, that's another like long-term side effect. Um, and other diseases, you know, parents come to us. We have so many parents that advocate because they've lost their children to whooping cough. If you get meningitis, I'm going to tell you, to me, it's the most frightening of all of the vaccine preventable diseases. The people that I know who I adore, some of them have no limbs. They have no noses. It literally eats your body away. Um, the survivors have long-term kidney failure, major problems. And that's the ones who make it. One in 10 people who get meningitis never survive the week. Yeah, that's not, that's rough. So um, I guess I feel like we're kind of coming to the end of our questions. Is there anything else that you like really wish people knew about vaccination? Um, that like, you know, you're like, I feel like people don't ask this question. I just wish, I just wish people knew this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, first of all, people question the scientific integrity of, you know, different committees that are reviewing vaccines. The first thing I love to tell people is that I've been in this business now for 25 years. I go and watch them review every vaccine before they recommend them. It isn't fun. It is the most scientifically rigorous process. These are the most caring individuals in the world. They are doctors, they're researchers. 
they could be making millions of dollars doing other things, but instead they work in public health because they believe not in personal health, but in all of our health. So I guess that's kind of, for me, you know, the biggest point. It's a, it's so important to save other people. It's not just about your own family. It's, mm. you never know if you were to get flu or you get the measles or you get COVID, you may never know who you killed in your wake. Yeah. You know, my family bubble is four people. I don't go out with anyone. I come to my little office with my little door. I go home because when this is over, I want to know that I didn't get one single person COVID and I, not one person died because of me. Yeah. That's powerful. Um, great. Well, um, I think my last question is just really how can people find you and find out more about what you and vaccinate your family do? So we have an amazing web presence and we are on social media. We reach about 4 million people every year on our Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. Um, we are on Twitter, at your fam, and we believe we call ourselves, um, the non-judgmental place. You come and you ask questions. You should ask questions. You're getting a, you're getting a, a medical product in your body for your child or for you or for your grandparents, ask questions, just know what questions to ask and know who you should trust. You know, we're WHO certified, our website. So our information is accurate and just you know, take the time and, and feel free to call us. We're always happy to talk to people. Are y'all going to get on TikTok too? <laughs> My son has 40,000 followers on his TikTok page and he won't do a vaccine thing for me, but I'm getting on him. <laughs> How rude. <laughs> <laughs> My other son would do it. He's the one who had flu. So he's uh, got it. Well, thank you so much for meeting with us. Um, again, we'll we'll drop some of those um, links down in the show notes um, so that people can connect with with vaccinate your family. But um, thank you so much. Thank you. It's really my pleasure. It's wonderful to speak to people, especially of your generation, who really care. This has been another episode of Demystifying Wellness. We thank you for joining us. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, share with a friend, or leave a review. And be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Laura Merkel Fitness and at Jarrett Physio. We hope you enjoy the rest of your day and be sure to tune in next time for more Demystifying Wellness.